Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Hey, everyone. Have I told you about the Forager Project? They're a 100% organic plant-based food company based in California, dedicated to making a world a better place than they found it. Don't you love that? They make yogurts, kefirs, all these cool things out of organic cashews. Do you know that cashews are actually a seed on an apple? Yeah, I found the coolest um, video on cashews. Anyway, so they turn these cashews into sour cream, cottage cheese, milk, yogurts. Um, they're really delicious. They sent me samples, actually, in a FedEx box with ice. It was so cool. Um, they're absolutely delicious. Forager Project is passionate about creating healthy, organic, plant-based food and equally passionate about nurturing a healthy democracy. They believe that voting is the most essential ingredient needed to do this. Forager wants to inspire everyone to get out and vote. And that means you participate in our democracy. They provide voting resources and information for you at foragerproject.com forward slash vote or on the socials like Instagram, Twitter, etc. at Forager Project. Cultivate democracy. Vote. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just... Um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden. And just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey, uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. I am just, I'm so thrilled. I'm super excited. I'm a little bit nervous because I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. And so um, I just, uh, I'm such a huge fan. I've learned so much from our guests today. I know you probably listen to our podcast too. I talk about it in our um, Organic Oasis guidebook that we wrote because just if you, I know listeners, you're going to get a million golden seeds from our guest today. So from the um, Pioneering Today podcast and Modern Homesteading, here's Melissa K. Norris. So welcome to the show, Melissa. Hey, Jackie. I am so excited to be on here. Thank you for having me. Well, oh, thank you for sharing with our audience. So I tell my listeners when, when my guests, like my show is such a success because of amazing guests like you and like when you share things, I call them golden seeds, like things that people share that are just, and I know you're going to just give us tons of those. So do you want to tell listeners, like I know a lot about you, but do you want to tell listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got started on your garden pioneering journey? Yeah, I'm thrilled to. And thank you so much. Those are such sweet words. And that, that really does mean a lot. You know, 
I have to say too, like gardeners, which you know, because you do this show, and if you're listening to this, you're a gardener. Gardeners are some of the most open-handed, homesteaders too, but especially gardeners. Like we are so excited to share what's worked for us in the garden and what we've learned with other people who are interested in it. Because sadly to say, there's just not enough gardeners in the world. So a lot of people, when you're growing a garden, you don't have as many people around you who are as quite as excited about it as you are. So when you meet somebody that's interested, you're like, oh boy, I can't wait. And you get to talk a whole bunch. So I feel like that that's what we get to do on gardening podcasts. And I love them. So a little bit of a backstory about me, if you don't, if, you, if we've not been introduced yet, let me just say I'm very excited and pleased to meet you. Uh, my name is Melissa K. Norris, and I'm a fifth-generation homesteader. But what that really means is we just grew up raising our own food. So at, when I was younger, oh, oh, the hindsight of youth, right, looking back, I didn't really understand how lucky I was to be raised my dad um, – got married, his second marriage was much later in life. And so my parents are 20 years apart. But that means I was really raised by an even older generation. And my dad was brought up, he was young through the time, but through the Great Depression. And they lived off of the land. I mean, if they didn't grow it, then they wouldn't eat during the winter. So they very much lived that very rural homesteading lifestyle. And so even after, you know, by the time he had me, like I said, it was his second marriage and he already had seven, I have seven half siblings um, and already had raised those families, even though, you know, he was, um, had income. My dad has always been a really hard worker and provider. We still raised a lot of our own food. And I thought that everybody did that. We did live out in the country, but I just thought everybody had a garden. Like everybody's mom canned. Everybody's mom cooked, you know, from scratch. And we, my dad raised our own beef cattle. So we raised up. We didn't have chickens by the time I came along or dairy animals. Um, he did when it, his, he had more children at home than just me. My older siblings were out of the house by the time I was one. So it was just one kid at home. But I really, until I hit high school and started visiting, you know, going to friends' houses and staying overnight and getting a little bit more out in the world, even though it wasn't that broad at that time, I didn't realize that that was an anomaly. I just thought that's what everybody did. So I came to this lifestyle just because I was raised in it. But then as an adult, we all have that decision, like, are you going to keep the things your parents did just because that's how you were raised? And then when I got married, of course, then my husband and I had to decide what we wanted to do. And so thankfully, he was very on board <laughs> with having a garden because he was not raised that way. And then it became really interesting because growing up, my dad was self-employed. And so he always had, you know, a steady income, but he worked for himself. So I got to, you know, kind of watch that. But my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so when my, I got married, my husband and I, and moved out on our own, I had a day job. So I was working, you know, 40 hours a week and commuting. And so I had to learn how to bridge still raising a lot of your own food, cooking from scratch, growing it and the preserving. I had to really learn how to balance that with having a regular day job and commute Um and still having, you know, that whole household to run instead of just get, you know, I shouldn't say just getting to do one or the other. But so that was probably where my biggest challenges came and where a lot of my insights and things I've learned through, we've been married 20 plus years now, um, over two decades is learning how to merge those two together with this modern world so that you can make it work. 
And you have done such an amazing job. Like when I hear all these things. So it's interesting because my husband is 14 years older than I am. And I feel like he grew up in a very similar life to what you grew up. Like he grew up in a 1200 acre cattle ranch in here in Montana. I mean, I, I think they only have like 50 cows, but that's a lot. And like doing a lot of the things that you did when you were growing up. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny because people will say, like, I'll hear comments. No, nobody's meaning to be mean like that. But people say comments like about, you know, you'll see a, a a span of age difference of people, especially dating and whatnot. And I just have to laugh because I'm like, oh, pff, 10 years? That ain't nothing. <laughs> you know, like 20 years. And my parents have been married uh, very long. Oh, gosh, how many years? Like going on 50. I, need, I can't think it's coming up 50, 50 plus here. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely worked out. But I actually, there can be pros and cons to any situation, but I actually feel blessed now that I got to have all of that insight from that older generation, you know, from my dad and to witness all of that. It's actually served me very well, but oh my goodness, as a teenager and even probably in my young, early, early twenties, I didn't quite have the same view. (laughs) And then you like, like you were working as a as a pharmacist do I remember that right because like I first heard about you from listening to Amy Porterfield's online marketing made easy class and podcast and just um right and and then and then you changed and ended up getting to stay home right yeah so for um okay so (laughs) You guys are probably going to start doing the math here, but I won't come probably right out and tell you though I might. So at eight, I got married at 18. My husband was five years older than me and we got married when I was 18. And that's also when I started working at our local pharmacy. And then I was able to do an on-the-job training program and traveling to a college and kind of doing like a work work college program where I became a pharmacy tech. So I wasn't actually a pharmacist, but I, I worked in pharmacy from the time I was 18 years old um, and I worked there for in that industry for 18 years. So you can, you guys can do the math forward. So in my thirties, <laughs> um, I and it had, you know, we had our two kids in between there. So had, you know, brought kids into the, to the farm and the homestead life and still working at the pharmacy and doing all of that. And then I started really sharing about homesteading because I've always wanted to be a writer. I have loved books. I start my like cut my teeth on the Little House on the Prairie series. My mom would read to me every night before I went to bed and she had a strict rule, like so many pages every night. And it didn't matter, like we hit the end of those pages for that night and that was it. Like it didn't matter how much I begged. She's like, nope, we'll read the rest tomorrow night. So she really instilled a, a love of, for me with books and especially because we did live very rurally there was um at that time there was just one neighbor that had another uh, child that was my age so it wasn't like there was even a lot of kids to play with around here and i laugh because yes we had tv we had tv but we didn't have cable and we still don't have cable where i live we live across the river and they just don't stretch it over to where we're at even now we can't get cable if we wanted it And so for us to have TV, it was the old antenna, like the metal antenna that sticks up on top of your house. And I kid you not, in the summertime, you could get fuzz and sound. Now, once there was snow on the mountain 
every time you wanted to watch TV, you had to go outside and you had to turn the antenna and just to get it to come in clear enough that you could see the picture. And at that, we only got like three or four channels. But if there was snow on the mountain, you're like, amen, like I can watch some, you know, I can watch some cartoons of that now, but you were very limited to what you could watch because we only had like three channels. And so really like my love of books. So that's, you know, what I did a lot was I would read books and I loved books and I loved, I then read the Laura Ingalls, you know, the whole Little House on the Prairie series and oh, just so many, so many wonderful books. So I knew from the time I was like eight years old, I wanted to be an author. Like I wanted to be able to write books. That had been my lifelong dream, but I thought that I was going to write historical fiction. And so it 18, I got married and started working at the pharmacy. And I also started writing every week. I started writing my first books and none of them got published. (laughs) But the funny thing is, is I was always writing historical fiction. So like on the cattle drives and Dutch oven cooking and, and I used to barrel race and train horses and have horses. I don't currently uh, at the moment, but I was very enriched into that lifestyle. And so it naturally came into my writing. And so I learned that even Oh, goodness, my, this was, you know, probably 10, 10 years ago, at least 10, 12 plus years, that if you wanted to get published, that you needed to have what they called a platform, you needed a website, you needed a blog. And I have to tell you, I was at this writer's conference, and I'm like, I don't even know what a blog is. I mean, I had no clue. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, but I can learn. Like, I've always had that, my dad instilled that in me at a very young age, like you figure out a way to get stuff done. You know, you can figure out anything, you just got to set your mind to it. So that's what I did. I'm like, I'll figure this out. Had dial up internet, could barely, you know, take forever. And so I figured out what a blog was. I'm like, well, I'll write about like my heroine is a Dutch oven cook in the book I was writing way back then. So I'll write like we do that. We do Dutch oven cooking. We do, you know, all this from scratch stuff. So I'll share like my favorite like recipes and how to do Dutch oven cooking. So I started this blog not knowing it was a homesteading blog at the time. And it was just to get people interested in in that and that they would, you know, hopefully then want to read my books that were set in this time period. So that's really where the whole online thing and teaching what we were already doing and I had grown up with was born with this blog. And so time went on and I wrote many, many books and none of them ever got published. Um, I got an, a literary agent for fiction and we shopped it around and I was really excited, but just nobody ever, ever none of the publishing houses ever bit on those projects. And so long story short, the last publishing house that I had submitted to, they rejected my novel. But she said, oh my goodness, you have got so much content on your blog. Would you write nonfiction for us? And I was like, yes, yes, I will. (laughs) And so that's how my very first books came out. And then, you know, the website and and the stuff that I offer, you know, like in in my resources to help people has just continued to evolve. But that was like the very baby beginning. But to answer your question, I stayed doing, I did that. Plus we raised all of our own meat here, beef, pork, chicken, uh, chicken for eggs, my laying hens, and then also our meat. And then every year we just kept increasing the garden and the fruit trees and all of that, you know, plus working the day job and then writing about it and doing the podcast. And actually both of my, my first two books were all written and done while doing all of that and still working my regular day job. Um, so thankfully I was able to, um, it's been just two years ago, I was able to, um, I retire sounds so odd because I am still in my 30s via my late 30s. If <laughs> for anybody who's trying to figure out the math there, because I'm dropping years, um, I was able to do full time, do the writing and my, the podcast and e-courses and all of those fun things and the books um, from home and obviously continue to raise all of our own food. So 
Um, but what I learned doing all of that while still holding a day job has been very, very helpful and powerful because I know there's so many people who are in the same boat I was for years. They wanted this lifestyle, but a lot of people aren't able to leave all of the regular part of life, you know, commutes and day jobs and that. And I was able to say like, hey, you can do it. And and this is how we've done it. And let me help you. And help you do, because that's what I love about learning from you so much as you give us these actionable tips and it like time saving, like I think you learned a ton of time saving processes and things when you were working and doing all this, which I still can't imagine ever doing. And, um, and just, uh, and then putting that together and then sharing it and, and you give away so much free content. It's, it's just crazy how much free things you do, but then you also go way into depth with, you know, just all of your different classes and all your different, but I know what my listeners really want to hear about, like, and I'm dying to read your new book that's coming out about gardening for a year, like being able to feed your family. Cause that's something that we struggle with. Like my husband's goal is to achieve that, but I just feel like we're, we're, I mean, we're certainly closer than other people. And we've been working on this for over 20 years, but like some of the, I don't know, just like, uh, like the things that you want to share. Yeah. So <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. No. So my new book is called the family garden plan and it's raising a year's worth of healthy and sustainable food. And so let me preface too, because a lot of times people see where we're at now when we're a lot further, like I said, 20 plus years of on my own in my marriage with my husband and I doing this. And then also 18 years prior to that, um, of watching it being, you know, from my parents and learning from them. So oftentimes people see where I say we raise all of our own meat and or harvest it from, you know, fishing and hunting what we're not raising ourselves. And we raise um, about about 55 to 65% of our own fruits and vegetables uh, for the year, not having to buy them from the store here in our homestead. But that's not how we started out. When we first started out as newlyweds, I have always raised enough green beans to can and take us through the year because that's one of the crops that my parents raised enough of through the whole year. So I just kind of knew this is how much I need to plant. This is how much I'm going to need to can, et cetera. So I had that mirrored and then we always had our own beef. And so, and that's kind of easy for, you know, a family of two, you know, we only needed like a quarter, a, a quarter of a beef really when it was just my husband and I. And then as we added our kids in you know, that went up, but those were kind of easy for me to see. So that's where I started. So if your goal is to raise a year's worth of food, my number one best advice is you pick one thing to start with. Now, maybe you want to do one vegetable and you want to do one fruit. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not growing other fruits and vegetables by any means, but it means that you're saying, okay, this is the one that I'm going to raise enough of in my growing climate that we'll be able to eat off of it fresh during the growing season. Cause really that's like ideal. Like there's nothing just going out to the garden and picking it right off the vine. It's ripe, ready to go. And you just get to eat it. But I'm also going to grow enough of it that I can preserve it. So then we can eat it all the way through until the next time, you know, next year when it's ready to grow and produce again for us. So pick one thing to begin with, if you're not doing this already with an item. So for example, you know, green beans is one that my family has also seed saved for over a hundred years. And so we always did 
raise enough of the green beans and preserve them because you couldn't buy those varieties anywhere in the store. They just weren't available. And we are very spoiled and I can't eat store-bought green beans and neither can my children <laughs> because we don't like them. They're, they're not the same flavor. And so, uh, you know, so that's kind of why I, I go a lot to the thing of the green beans, but pick, you know, pick one of the things, maybe it's tomatoes, you know, tomatoes are extremely versatile to use in our cooking. So maybe you're going to grow a year's worth of tomatoes to put up, uh, but pick that one thing and then you grow a year's worth of that or you try and sometimes it takes you a couple years to get it down and that's fine. But once you've gotten that down and it's like, okay, I know this is about how much we need and I'm pretty good at growing this, like it's coming kind of easy. Then you add in the next item. So every year, my goal, and this is what I, I, I teach in all you know the podcast and with my members inside our membership and my classes and all of that, but you your goal is to each year to just add one more thing. So that way it's not overwhelming. You're not gonna drive yourself crazy. It's very attainable. But each year, if you add one thing and then one more thing, very quickly, and sometimes people choose to do like two or three things, but I'm just saying, you know, just pick that one thing and add to it. And very quickly, you're going to increase and then you gain confidence and it's very contagious. And so then you build and you're still excited to do it, even when there's there's those work hours. And we all have those times like in the in the busiest part of summer, sometimes you kind of want to tear your hair out. You're like, oh my goodness, I've got so much to deal with in the garden. The weeds are taken over. I need to get all of this preserved because it's all going to go bad and it's all coming on at once. And you're like, why on earth did I did this? We all have those moments. But when you see everything on the shelf and you realize like, oh my goodness, I'm producing that I don't ever have to buy this from the store again, or at least for a whole year. When you feel that feeling, it takes all of those times when you're feeling a little bit harried and crazy away. And you remember like, this is why I'm doing this and it's totally worth it. Rather than if you try to just like do everything at once and you've never done it, you are going to become so overwhelmed that you're like, this is just crazy and dumb and I can't do this. So it's making it in a way that's for you to have life long achievement with it and to just build block by block by block. I think that is just all awesome advice. And it makes me feel like we are much closer to our goal because that's kind of how we've done it slowly over the years. So I have two quite Well, one, like you're in Washington. Like I always imagine you kind of close to where like Aaron Benzinkian is in Washington, but I could be way off. Like, is that not right? Just for listeners probably don't know. Yeah, so we we do live in Washington state and so I we live up in the foothills of the North Cascade Mountains. We're about 500 feet above sea level. So it's not like we're super high altitude. Um but we are about smack dab in the middle on the west side of the mountains between Seattle and the Canadian border. So I am fairly far north. It's about an hour and a half drive for me to hit the Canadian border, but we're not the coast is like an hour and a half away, but we go from the coast straight up into the mountains. So gardening wise and climate wise, I'm technically a gardening zone seven. Um, but we have, because we have a more of a microclimate being up in the foothills of the, of the pocket of the valley where we live up here in the mountains, usually um, our last frost is about, in, usually about the 1st of May. So then I'm able to plant out like my tomatoes and those things just out in the garden um, anywhere from mid-May. Sometimes it's Memorial Weekend. It really depends on the weather for the year. And then a lot of times we'll have a frost 
mid-September. Sometimes we're lucky like this year, and I didn't have one till the first part of October, and I was super excited. Um, but that's so that's kind of like my my gardening zone and then the growing days we have of our warm weather crops, which is really the end of May, just through that mid-September. It's a relatively shorter growing period um, than I think a lot of people anticipate sometimes when you say Washington or Pacific Northwest. Uh, well, it's still a lot longer than our climate here in Northwest Montana, but you know, I was listening to one of your episodes where you were talking about different microclimates and different things. And so we have a lot of that here too, but I'll bet it's a, a lot like that there. Um, I was kind of wondering also, cause I was watching um, your video about the like food that you have in your pantry and you had all that salmon. And I thought, but you probably get salmon from the Pacific ocean or like where you, where do you get that salmon? Yeah. So we are really super fortunate. So my husband does work a day job and um, he works at a mill actually that saws tone woods. So he saws guitar tops and bracewood for uh, Taylor guitars as one of their biggest um, customers, but also some for Martin. But the reason I'm sharing that, it does have a point, I promise, is we are really blessed that one of his bonuses that his boss provides is he, we get a fish bonus, which is really amazing. Um, and it is from, yes, from the ocean and it's, you know, fresh caught salmon and then they flash freeze it and vacuum seal it. And then we get so much of that a year. And so some of that we totally, um, I, I can't, we smoke and then can pressure can. So we've got it just sitting there on the shelf. Um, and it's one of my, oh, I love home canned smoked salmon. It is delicious and amazing. Yeah. So we're really fortunate that way. But then we also do, um, which in that, that video I didn't show because we were just showing what we have on the shelf, like dehydrated and canning wise. Um, but we do live, like I said, about an hour away from the coast. And so we have a little like 20 plus year old, 17 foot like ski boat. But if we just stay in the bay, like, like really close to the bay in the summer months, we have um, six little crab pots and we go out with our little boat and stay right close to shore. And we are actually able to get, um, we usually limit out and get enough of our own crab and catch that ourselves and then harvest, you know, and have all, um, our own crab for the year. So that's really the only two types of seafood that we're, that we do have enough to take us through the year. And one we're actually fishing for and harvesting ourselves, and the other, we're just really blessed and given to us. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't know any of that. Um, and then, well, do you want to, do you want to go with the questions, like, and tell us about something that grew good this year? Or do you want to talk about, like, your podcast and your latest episodes on your podcast? Or you tell, I you just talk, because my listeners are always like, Jackie, just let your guests talk. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So let, let me think here um, with what we've covered and then what I can kind of come back into. Um, I forgot. I just, what was the first question? What was some of the questions that you normally ask guests? Because now I'm like, we've talked about so much. I'm not sure where's like a good point to, to come back to certain things. <laughs> that's, well, you know what? Because that's why like I always take notes when we're talking because like you do when you're talking on the air, you kind of you're like, what did I say? And I yeah, this what... is what I like to talk about my book. <laughs> so well, like uh, my normally my first question is like, tell us about something that grew well this year. And you were talking about you know, I was asking about your book and growing years worth of food and, and you were talking a lot about like some of the technique, like starting with just like one crop. And like, I always talk about, you know, start with something that you like to eat, which I think basically, you know, you were saying you started with green beans cause you knew 
that. Oh, well, that's why I was asking, where do you live? Because maybe like we, Mike, my husband also does the same thing with green beans and he likes the bush beans because the pole beans, he says he gets really frustrated because we also get a frost usually around September, the first week in September, sometimes the end of August. And he's like, it's always right when they're just about to pick and then they freeze on me. Oh, it, oh, let's talk about that. So when, when's your, what's your guys' planting date? When do you guys? So we are usually, it's just a little bit later than you. Like the first week in June, the second week in June is when our last frost in the spring. And then we're very similar, like um, the end of, sometimes we'll get at the end of August, like the last week in August, but usually about the first or second week in September. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, let's talk about that actually, because... I do yep. have a section and I would love, yeah, love to share about picking varieties that grow best for your climate specifically. So I think that would be great. So I don't know. Do you want to ask me something or do you want me to just jump in or how do you want to segue that part? <laughs> no, you can just, ju- or, um, yeah, just jump in because, okay. uh, my listeners just are always interested in like what they can do to be more productive and like, yeah, what are good varieties? Like, the number one most visited website page on my blog is the 10 most productive crops to grow in Montana. So okay. I'm sure they're interested in like, you know, stuff like that. Okay. So what it's, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I know. Awkward pause. <laughs> so one of the things that I really like to tell people when you're planning out your garden or your and definitely if you did grow a garden this year it's really a good thing to do in the fall and in the winter months is to look at the garden and say okay this did like really amazing and this didn't do quite so well because it's really fresh in your mind and you think that come you know springtime or even wintertime if you're starting seeds indoors which is going to depend upon your climate and what you're growing that you're going to remember everything but the gardening years and seasons start to go together. And I've noticed if I don't take notes, like right afterwards, like I think I'm going to have this fabulous memory and remember it all. And then I don't. I'm like, oh, was that last year? Or was that this year? And which one did I say I didn't want to do again? Which one of those two varieties were it? So I've really learned to take notes and kind of do like a, a post of the summer annual vegetable garden, kind of like an audit and be like, okay, this this is what we're doing again, or this is something I need to try to fix this year, et cetera. So do that if you did have a garden this year. Um, And if you didn't, well, then you're going to know that you need to do it for next year because you're going to have a garden this year. But a lot of times when we come into, especially uh, this time of year as in the fall as we're recording this and then into the winter, is we want to start planning and getting our seeds and deciding on what we're going to be growing the next year. And a lot of times it's really important to take note of crops that were cut short because of your growing season. So for example, I've tried some different types of tomatoes in the past and some of the varieties, they were just more heat loving than others. And that's something we struggle with here in the Pacific Northwest, even though I do grow my tomatoes actually in um, a, it's basically a high tunnel. So it's an unheated greenhouse that we just used an old carport frame and put some plastic on so that we didn't have blight. We're so rainy here and cool in the Pacific Northwest that I really have not been able to successfully grow tomatoes without keeping them under some type of cover. 
Um, and, but I tried some new varieties. So I al- usually always do a San Marzano Lungo number two, which is an heirloom paste tomato because paste tomatoes, especially if you're looking for that whole year thing and preserving them, you want to have the majority of the ones that you're planning on preserving and putting up be a paste tomato. So when you're making your tomato sauces and your pizza sauces and your pasta sauce, and if you're going to do ketchup and just all of those things, a paste tomato doesn't have as much water. So that means you don't have to simmer it as long when you are making your sauce to can. So it just cuts down your time and they are, they're fleshier, but usually they have a better flavor, like for cooking wise. So when you're looking at doing your tomatoes, make sure you've got some paste varieties in there. Now, like I said, my, my favorite happens to be a San Marzano Lungo number two specifically because I, I'm all of us gardeners were like, well, what exactly, you know, like what kind, like can't just say cucumber or pickling cucumber, like what pickling cucumber, what are those varieties? So I try to share them. Uh, But I wanted to try some fun new heirloom varieties. And so I did a, um, I think it was a Russian purple. And then we did a black Cherokee. And while they were fun, and I still think it's always important to try new varieties because you never know when you're going to discover a new beloved favorite. Um, they just weren't as prolific for me. And they seem to set a little bit later than the San Marzanos did. And so they took up some of my growing space and they weren't really well suited for the sauces and stuff. And they were delicious just to eat like on sandwiches or to, you know, to put some mozzarella with basil on and, and do up in real quick in the oven like that. Um, but I didn't feel like they were something that I would do a whole lot of. So I've only grown like one or two plants max since that first year, just to make sure uh, for fun, but to make sure I didn't cut myself short on by preserving ones. And so one of the things that we want to take into account, especially if you are trying a new variety, or if you feel like you're getting cut short on some of your crops, is you want to look at the varieties for your area that maybe have if you're in a colder climate, have a shorter days to harvest. So one of the beautiful things about when you're seed saving is, as you're going to seed save, and I know I'm switching gears here, but roll with me. <laughs> when you're seed saving, you're going to be picking from the plants that one produced the soonest. So you're going to be kind of marking those plants like, okay, this one actually started to produce beans the fastest of like all the 40 plants I had. These plants started to produce blossoms and form their beans the fastest, um, are the most disease free and are the most prolific. So the ones that are producing the best and all of that. And like I said, earliest too. And the awesome thing about the seed saving is, is you're going to seed save from those. And so every year you are getting plants that are more climatized and better suited for your specific garden and microclimate and gardening zone. So pretty soon with, you know, relatively in within, you know, a few short years and gardening seasons, um, you're just going to get this plant that is perfect for your environment because all of us have a little bit different, even within the same gardening zones, first frost and last frost, et cetera. So that's one of my, my favorite things to do with, with seed saving is because you do get these plants, but you might not be into seed saving yet. And there, that could be an, that's, that's an entire (laughs) few episodes on its own, the intricacies with seed saving. Um, but look at varieties. If you've got that short growing period, Look at varieties because even within your green beans, for example, or your tomatoes, there's going to be some varieties that say, you know, ready to harvest within 90 days. And then you're going to have other varieties that say ready to harvest 120 plus days. Well, that that's a whole month, 
And if you've got frost dates coming, that's the difference between you actually getting to harvest the full harvest for three to four weeks on something and you only getting to harvest for like a week. It's actually a really big deal. So look at those things on seed packets and research some different varieties and find the one that's best suited to your area with those growing days. And also you'll see some that say, you know, struggle in cooler climates, or you'll say some that produce really well in cooler climates. So pay attention and do a little bit of research um, with those and then try those varieties in your own garden. And if you find that they perform well for you, then you know, okay, these are the ones that I want to keep. And maybe each year, instead of reordering these seeds from wherever I ordered them from, I'm going to try seed saving to see if I can get them even closer to what I need for my gardening planting times. So That's one of the things that I really suggest to do now, if you haven't done that or you're not doing that, um, is to really start kind of researching those that are best suited to your growing space. See, listeners, I knew that Melissa was going to drop a million golden seeds that you were going to love. And just there was so much great stuff there. So do you make cilantro? Like are paste tomatoes good for cilantro? Like maybe that's why I always struggle with cilantro. Not cilantro. Um... Salsa. With salsa. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I use paste tomatoes, anything that I'm preserving and canning, because you don't want soupy salsa. And that, you know, like fresh, when you're doing like, um, you know, fresh salsa and stuff, but when we're canning it, it's obviously with heat because you have to can salsa in order for it to be shelf stable. And so heat's going to cook the tomatoes, which therefore usually makes it more watery. But if you use a paste tomato, especially a good meaty, fleshy paste tomato, like a San Marzano, a lot of people like... um, uh, the, the Amish paste, which I haven't personally grown, but I have a lot of gardener friends and canning friends who like an Amish paste. You know, there's lots of different varieties within that, that, uh, paste variety. Um, but yes, it definitely helps you have a much thicker salsa. So it's not that, so it's not watery and soupy because nobody wants watery and soupy salsa when they're trying to put it on a chip, right? Absolutely. Uh, so actually a lot of my listeners tend to be like, bigger gardeners they're more like on my husband's level and like you know like they'll have like a whole backyard full of gardening or they're master gardeners or they're people who have gardened for quite a while and i bet they're curious about like some of the things that you talk about like um for uh, like with fruit trees and just um how you manage to like decide where you're going to like how much you're going to grow of things and what to do with that produce. Like I know one thing I've always struggled with is like when it all comes on all at one time, we can roll with that. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I do when I'm picking varieties is just like, for example, that I used with that paste tomato is you need to think about how am I going to be preserving this and using it in my kitchen year round. So it really does us no good if we decide to put up, you know, 20 jars of hot mustard relish, if we only use one jar a year, like that's just silly. And sometimes you don't know that. Like sometimes you're like, oh, I'm super excited to try this recipe and you're getting into preserving and canning and you just don't realize that your family's not going to go through that. And it's been sitting on your shelf for three or four years and you haven't went through it. (laughs) That will happen with time. It happens to all of us. Um, But right. Not just me. No, totally not just you. It happens. Um, So what's important, though, is to really, and this is one of the things from the book that I say that you should do, and I actually do this yearly, and the reason for that is because 
you know, 10 years ago, I cooked differently. My kids are obviously older now as well, too. There's that. But our tastes have changed. And a lot of times we, I just cook different foods and therefore I'm using kind of different ingredients or in different forms. So I don't do up as much jam and jelly as I used to because my kids aren't little and they're not eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on a very regular basis like they used to. So I don't put up as much jam and jelly for example, but you want to look at, and I recommend tracking. If you do meal planning, this is totally already done for you. But if you don't do meal planning, just, I'm not a very good meal planner. Like I will know like what I'm cooking tonight, what we're probably having for the next couple nights. And then we just start over again. Someday when I grow up, I will be a meal planner. That's my goal, but not now. (laughs) (laughs) So but just write down, like, this is what we had for dinner. So write down, did you use a can of tomato sauce? You know, and if it wasn't home can if it was from the store then you know you probably know that it was about two cups which would be a pint if you'd home canned it just kind of keep track of those ingredients oh I used you know four cups of green beans when I made a stew or we had green beans as a side and just kind of keep track of the produce stuff um, that you're using and cooking with if you can do a month awesome if you can't do a month you're like there ain't no way I'm tracking that for a month do a week do two weeks and then just times it if you did two weeks times it by two then you know averagely this is approximately that's how much you use of that item for a month, then times it by 12. This is going to give you a rough average, but it's going to give you a very good idea uh, then so that you know how much you would need to plant in order to have enough of that produce for you to preserve and take you through a whole year. And you're like, well, I don't know how much, how many plants do I need if we're using four cups a month and that's going to be, you know, times 12, however many four times 12 is there, 48. <laughs> me think on the fly, do math on the fly. How many plants is that? Well, obviously it's going to, you know, uh, you're going to go to the free chart that I have for you at the familygardenplan.com, which is the book website. And the book is filled with these charts that say, okay, well, if I need, you know, one green bean plant is going to give you on average X amount of cups. So you know, okay, well then this is how many I need to put in. So we did it for all of the fruits and the vegetables because a lot of charts will show you vegetables, but then when you get to your perennial plants, you know, asparagus, and then of course all of your fruit trees and your berry bushes, you're like, well, goodness, how many blueberry plants would I need for my family to take us through a whole year? And it's going to change on the size of your family, but it's also going to change and be based upon how much is your family eating of that food. So it's never going to be the same. We can have two families of four that live next door to each other and have the same growing season, but how much I need for a year and how much they need for a year of each food, it's going to be different. So this allows you to dive in and be like, oh, it's all done for me. Here we go. Okay. This is the green beans. This is how many I get per plant on average of cups. Okay. This is how many plants I need to plant. Um, So we, we did it up in very easy to use charts and you actually get access to that specific chart and worksheet for free when you go to the book website and Every chapter in the book has amazing worksheets like that. That's just one. Um, But it really helps you to know exactly how much to put. But it also, like when you're picking the varieties, like I said, is knowing how am I going to be preserving that to take us through the whole year. So the paste tomatoes was an example. And then like for us, for cucumbers, I actually always do a pickling cucumber because we love garlic dill pickles. And also we do um, my husband's great grandma's mustard pickle relish that we use. Um, I, it's kind of funny. I was talking about relish before and not using a hot hot mustard one, which I don't like spicy. Um, so, but we, we use that relish 
you know, all the time. So I know that when I'm putting in my cucumbers, if I want to do one plant of just like, you know, regular cucumber, English cucumber, whatnot, then that's fine. The majority of the cucumber plants that I put in are going to need to be a pickling cucumber and a Chicago pickling cucumber is one of my favorites. It's, um, it stays nice and firm. It's very prolific and it actually has really good taste. If you do just want to like slice it and chop it up and put it in a salad or dip it into like a, you know, a, a Greek yogurt sauce or something, just eating it fresh. So it's kind of like, I feel like it's a dual purpose pickle, pickle, cucumber. <laughs> I got pickles on the brain, uh, cucumber. And so usually I just grow all of that. And that's the cucumber variety that I know I'm putting in for the year. So I hope, I know I, I covered a lot of stuff there, but did that answer, did that answer your main question there? It did. And I want to just make sure while we're on the topic that listeners know, like, so if you go to pre-order the family garden plan now, not only do you get the early access to the charts and workshops you're talking about, but also you have crop and rotation and companion planning videos that you get. There's a seed saving 101 video and ebook package, and there's an organic soil amendment guide. And just, I I've listened to so many of your podcasts. You were talking about that organic soil amendment guide, um, the other day when I was going back and re-listening to them and just, um, that alone is worth like just gold. Like you just, there, it sounded like there was so much in that, um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Cause that's like talks like things that might like, that's about soil health. Right. And like, cover yeah. And yeah. But is it, wait, yeah. 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 So in the family garden plan book, if you pre-order, so the book hits store shelves, like, you know, nationwide and actually in physical stores like Barnes and Nobles and all in that, but um, January 7th. But the cool thing is if you pre-order now, you get access, like I said, to that worksheet and then I have a whole bunch of bonus items because as gardeners, for me, like there's a lot that I need in charts. Like I need just to be able to flip to and to learn quickly. But there are some things that I actually like want it to be able to see. And so we've got a couple of different video packages that you get for free just by pre-ordering the book. And like you said, there's the companion planting one and the crop rotation. Because when I first started doing crop rotation and looking into doing companion planting, I a lot of what I found overwhelmed me. I'm like, oh my goodness, between these two things alone, like there is so much for me to keep straight in my head. Like how, how do I do this? And how do I do it in a backyard garden where I'm putting in early spring crops and then I'm putting in summer crops and then I'm putting in fall crops all in the same space. So I'm like, I have to try to companion plant and crop rotate basically three times a year. Like it really overwhelmed me. And so I'm like, okay, I need a way to be able to break this down so that it's very usable in a backyard garden where you don't have like a big traditional farmer or, or big agriculture, you know, you have huge fields. And so you're just crop rotating. A lot of it is, is based towards that. So like these really big farms and fields, which is a little bit easier to do when you've just got one cro monocrop to this big, huge acres of land versus a small backyard garden where you're putting, you know, almost all the things in a much, much smaller area. Um, and so that's what really all of this stuff is honestly, is like everything that I needed and use. And I'm like, I need this in easy done format. And so as I implemented and figured that out and did out my own charts, like all of that is what is went into these videos and within the book as well. And when it came to the soil amendment guide, 
that one, and it's all from an organic and natural standpoint, because you can find a lot of things, you know, online that are synthetic, and that's just not the way that we want to go. So if you want to do that in your own garden, and I'm like, that's totally fine. But for me, I really needed to know how can I fix my soil when I have issues with things that are organic and are totally natural and can be done easily, like I said, in that smaller backyard garden type environment, not unlike this huge commercial you know, type operation. And so for the soil amendment guide, you know, I had, we had our soil tested and we had some of the levels that had been off because we've been gardening on the same piece of uh, gardening spot for like 12 plus years. And we had been putting some wood ash from our garden out there. Well, we'd put too much in and I had gotten my pH level had gotten off and it had affected the garden the year before. And so I did a soil test. I don't normally do a soil test every year, but I did a soil test because we just had some different growing issues that were going on. I was having some um, blossom end rot and just kind of, they just weren't producing and growing like they normally were, even though it was like my same seeds and same varieties. And the weather was fairly typical as you can get in any garden, right? It always varies from year to year. So we did a soil test and it was super interesting because it, it came back and it showed me my pH level was off. Um, and, you know, and really looked at those 12 micro and macronutrients as well as pH level and nitrogen levels that most that your garden soil has and that will affect your vegetable and fruit production the most. Um, and so I'm like, okay, this is great. Now I know that these levels are off, but how, how do I go about fixing them. And so I, we did a ton of research on like signs without a soil test, some different signs that show you if that level is either too high or too low. Cause it's kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears. If it's too high or too low, you're going to exhibit some different signs and it can cause problems if it's not like in that optimal range. And so like some visual signs that will tell you, okay, this is probably the level that's off. And then this is organically how you fix it by either increasing or decreasing, depending on what it is, um, so that you can get everything back into that harmony place so that you've got your soil health at that best spot that it can be for everything to grow and just give you the most produce that and har biggest harvest yield that you can get. And it just sounds like you have put so much thought and effort and research into that. Like I said, I feel like that alone is worth it but then you've got all these other great things and you've been um just doing this for so long and feeding your family and just i know there's so much in your book that my listeners are interested in and i can't wait till it comes out and so like at the end of my show i kind of do this thing called getting to the root of things that are like kind of you know just whatever's the first thing that comes into your head type of questions like do you have a least favorite activity that you got to kind of force yourself to go into the garden and do? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you know, I have to say probably like overall, my least favorite thing when it comes to the garden is I don't love to weed. Now, once I'm out there in weeding, I find that it can actually be very therapeutic and I get some great creative ideas out there when I'm doing it. But like if I'm thinking about my favorite things to do in the garden, weeding is not high on there. It's like, oh, I love planting time. I love harvest time. You know, I like even just kind of, oh, one of my favorite things to do is to go out in the morning and just kind of stroll through the garden and keep an eye on things and just, you know, just be out there and enjoying it. But if it's like, oh, you need to go out in the garden and weed, I'm like, oh. So I, was, I would probably say weeding. 
Well, on the flip side, then, like, is planting and harvesting your favorite thing to do? Or, like, that's the next question. What's your favorite activity? Oh, my favorite activity. You know, something. this may sound weird. One of my favorite things is actually pruning. I love to prune. I, I couldn't tell you why. I mean, other than obviously pruning it in, increases the health of your plants and is going to give you a larger yield in most, in, in most cases. But I really like to prune. Oh my gosh. I can totally relate, but I will be honest with you. I don't know if I would have said that a year ago at this time, but last was it last Christmas? Maybe it was the Christmas before. I just, my mom got me a set of really nice Cutco pruners. Mm. And last summer, I took them out in the garden so much more than I ever have. And I really fell in love with pruning. And now I know why. Because they can like make cutting like a lilac, like cutting like butter. I mean, they're so sharp and just so perfect. Oh. And just Ooh. my thing that I want to do is like, I like to paint mailboxes and like, I want to paint a mailbox and like keep them down there because the one, my husband planted our garden at the bottom of a hill and you get down there and you're like, Oh yeah, I should have my printers. I want to prune that, but they're back up at the top of the hill. And a lot of times I don't have all the time. So, but anyway, I can totally relate to pruning. I fell in love with it after I got those pruners. And when I was a kid, I have so many memories of my mom walking around with her pruners. So I think she probably liked it a lot too. Okay, I got to put those on my Christmas wish list because honestly, like my pruners are not the best. <laughs> and so when you're saying like butter, I'm like, ooh, do tell me, do tell me this. So, okay, I'm making a, a note to put a pair of those on my Christmas wish list. All right, I'll send you the link because I actually think like she bought them, like the school behind her house has like, a, it's like a Waldorf school and it has like a little craft fair and she likes to go support them. And I think she bought them from like the salesman, but I want to say he's really close to you in Washington uh, state. And he was just there for that fair. Oh, and uh, okay. Yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes and send it to you because um, yeah, they're awesome pruners. So Melissa, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Oh goodness. That's a good question. I like that. I think, you know, really the, the best gardening advice that I got was really, um, was crop rotation and soil health, which sounds like two very broad things. But one of the best pieces of advice I got was we were growing for the first time, um, broccoli, brassica family. And we are fortunate in our area that I actually have a certified organic farmer and she's a professional grower, um, but she's a, a close family friend and she's been an excellent mentor. She taught me how to prune blueberries properly too. But um, we, so it was the first year that I was doing broccoli in our garden and I was telling her like how excited I was that, you know, and all of that. And she's like, uh, she said, okay, she goes, that's awesome that you're doing broccoli, but anything that you do in the brassica family, you like, I'm sure you know this, like she has such a, a nice gentle way of delivery. She's like, I'm sure you know this, but you want to make sure that you don't plant anything else that's in the brassica family in that same spot for at least three years, because there won't be enough nitrogen and you won't get a good crop. Like it's, it, you know, it, it just takes too much. So make sure that you're rotating. And that was my first introduction actually to crop rotation. And that was the only form of crop rotation that I did for probably like a good five years. Like I didn't even dive into it even further than that. So that, that's still probably one of the best pieces of like individual advice there that I got. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, we, um, 
broccoli is by far my favorite food and thing to grow from the garden. And I was listening to you. I want to say you were talking to Jill McSheehy, but we, the, the year my husband grew the most broccoli for us, we got squirrels and those stinkers like pooped on my broccoli, oh. took one or two bites out of every, and then oh. hopped to the next one and ruined. Like my husband had planted me just the best crop oh. of broccoli and like, do you have any tips for getting rid? I know you said you didn't have squirrels, but you had something else that was kind of close. Yeah, the nerve of the squirrels. You know, sometimes I feel really bad for saying that we don't have a squirrel problem here because I know for people that deal with them, they're super frustrating. I'm like, don't throw your tomatoes at me for saying we don't have squirrels. <laughs> um, but, you know, we we have a lot of deer here and we also have elk and the deer are very destructive to our to our plants, especially our fruit trees and our perennials, not not just your regular garden. And so honestly, like for keeping the pests and even the birds like off of your berry bushes from not stripping them, the best method that I have found to be the most effective, like time and time over and over again with kind of the least amount of hands-on work after you've put it into place is to use some type of barrier method. So I use netting on all of my blueberry bushes and we net all the blueberry bushes. I've used netting before. I didn't do it this year, which note to self. See, I said that whole evaluation thing, do it again this year. I didn't, we didn't block off or fence off some of our younger fruit trees that we put in. I added some new fruit trees and the more older established ones as they grow up higher and they don't have all the, just the tender young branches. If the deer go through, they don't seem to damage them as much. But my younger ones, they actually broke a lot of the branches off and kind of ruined the shaping of it as a, that I was trying to maintain because they were, you know, just like three, three-year-old fruit trees. They were pretty young still. So I need to put up some fencing just around the top vegetative part of the trees again and or netting um, as well. So if you can get like some type of row cover or cages or something like that, which I know is not always feasible to do your entire garden. Like I, I totally understand that. Um, but for us, like even with the, like the cabbage moths and all of that, like if I can use a row cover, I found that that just is more effective than trying to use all the different sprays and scents and shiny ribbon and flashing CDs and, you know, and owls and fake owls and all those different things a barrier method has always proven for us to be the most effective. Hmm. I wonder how we could put barriers on the broccoli. I bet, but we do have row cover. Uh, so maybe we'll have to try that. We did. The one thing was one of my guests said that they thought maybe it was because we were having a drought year because then we haven't had that problem in other years. Mm. And it was a really bad drought year that year, but it just happened to be the year Mike planted the most broccoli. For me. <laughs> Anyway, so Melissa, what is your favorite tool that you like to use? Like if you, all right, wait, before I ask you that, just how big is your place you know, that it's, you're growing on? It's really funny because people assume that you have to have this huge, huge amount of space in order to grow that much of your own fruits and vegetables. And again, to be fair and to, and to specify you know, the size of your family is definitely and how much you eat of one particular item is going to indicate how much space 
you need. So some people may need more, more than others or less, but really, um, we, so we have 14.96 acres, so almost 15 acres, but our house is only situated on one acre where our house and yard is. Everything else is woods and or pasture where our cattle and pigs and chickens and everything else are, which I'm not growing out in the pasture, pasture lands or the deeply wooded areas except for blackberries, which are technically an invasive weed where I live. Um, they grow everywhere, even if you don't want them. Um, but I'm not growing any of our crops in those pasture lands because the cattle are kind of like deer and the pigs and, and even the chickens. They would kind of destroy most of the things if I tried to grow them out in our pasture. So our house and yard is on one acre. And on that, um, I less than a half of that acre is actually housing our orchard and my berry plants and our perennials. And then where I grow all of our tomatoes and the majority of our peppers and my high tunnel is a 20 by uh, 10 foot structure. So 20 feet long and it's about 10 feet wide. And that's where um, I, about 18 to 20 tomato plants of those paste San Marzano Lungos takes us through an entire year's worth of tomato products. And then I have about uh, one space for a 10 foot row of putting in some hot peppers that I grow in there as well alongside them. And then our regular annual vegetable garden, um, which is where I have, you know, obviously all of, you know, <laughs> your annual summer vegetables and then fall too, but it's not like my asparagus bed and blueberries, et cetera, and raspberries, that type of thing. Um, that is about 56 feet wide. And then it's about 20 feet long. So I don't actually know how many square feet that is, but it's not as large as you would think. Um, and then we've got grape plants that just grow vertically. So that's another thing I talk about is, is finding ways to grow things vertically. So we have a cement patio um, on the on our, off our back deck and we have an outdoor cooking kitchen and stuff out there. But my husband built an arbor that goes up and over it. And we have two grape plants planted on either side. And then they climb up and over this arbor and provide us with shade in the summer and grapes. But really like the square foot of actual ground space of them it's only like, like, you know, um, two plants on each side. It's like a three foot circumference around the bottom of each of these. And like, and then it just is all up in airspace. So it really takes up very little space. And then we do some container gardening. Like I have my herbs mixed in with my flowers and like just in your little landscaping that most people have a few flower beds around their house and their doorways. Um, and then we just have a couple rows of our blueberries and raspberries and asparagus patch. And then I put my rhubarb in with my blueberries because they both like acidic soil. And then I only have to amend one area once. Amen. I'm really about working the least amount of possible, believe it or not, for doing all of this. So if I can find a way that um, it's going to be like the lazy way to do it, but doesn't affect anything negatively, like I'm your girl. <laughs> and so really... We it's not as nearly as much space as you would think. So on less than a half an acre, we're able to put all of this. Plus, I wanted it all close because just like you said, I don't have a lot of time. I don't want to be traipsing over 14 some acres to go to all of these different areas. I want to be able to to just go out and to have things close to the house or close to water supplies. So if I need to water and irrigate it all during the summer, I can do so. If I forgot to, you know, get the pruning shears, it's not this huge, you know, huck back and I'm wasting the time that I do have available you know, gathering supplies and going back and forth, but everything's in a fairly congregated close area to itself. So I feel like that helps with productivity too. 
Well, I think that's what it is. It's not that you're lazy. It's just you're trying to be efficient because you're doing so much and you're able to do so much because you are being efficient and super effective and have these um, kind of like systems and, and things in place. So back to the favorite tool question, what what would you take with you if you had to move and could only take one tool with you? Oh, that's a good thing. If I had to move and could only take one tool, well, you know, I, I can't say that I would really consider it a tool, but it would definitely be our heirloom strain of um, seed beans that we, my family's been saving for, like I said, over well over a hundred years and generations and generations back. If I could only take one thing that was garden related, it would be my, my seeds, those ones specifically. I love that. And I don't think anybody said anything like that before. Okay, I know you're like your time is super valuable, but just a few more of these quick questions, and then there's one long one. So, uh, a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden? Ooh, well, you know what? Almost all my cooking is from the garden. But if we're going with a very, very favorite, one of my favorite recipes, and probably because I have just got done baking one this morning, is my uh, husband's grandma's pumpkin roll. So always grow sugar pie pumpkins because they just give the absolute best flavor when you're doing anything. And I believe it or not, I'm not really a big fan of pumpkin pie. I know some people consider that sacrilegious to say, (laughs) but pumpkin roll, oh goodness, like bring it on and then like pumpkin savory soup. So I'm kind of like in this pumpkin mood, but I would have to say my absolute favorite is probably pumpkin roll. And I just downloaded your fall magazine that's full of um, some recipes. And I was watching your video on how to um, cook pumpkin because it drives me crazy that people buy canned pumpkin. (gasps) It's one of the easiest things in the world to make pumpkin. So how about a favorite internet resource? Where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Oh, that is good. You know, there's so many. Like, I have to pick one. I have to say when... When I'm really like in research mode, which I did a ton of research for the book, like scientific studies and et cetera, not just like things we've always done in the garden, but like actually data um, from scientific areas is extension offices. You know, extension offices all over the U.S. have so much info there and a lot of it is backed by scientific data. So from gardening to preserving, so making sure that our preserving practices, because I'm really big on on safety, like I love being able to do so much at home and using old-fashioned methods, but I want to make sure I'm up to date with keeping my family safe and myself safe and also safe with what I'm sharing with other people, you know. And so I would say probably like I look at extension offices first and I always double check anything that if I don't know, I get with an extension office and there's so many of them that you can usually find it from one extension office or another. It might not be my own state specifically, um, but I think that they're a great, sometimes very underused um, resource. So my question that I have really quick on that topic of like canning things and preserving things safely and doing things in the garden safely is like, which sort of is totally off, but like the recipes, like how do you come up with recipes? Like, I know not for preserving, but like in that pumpkin thing, like, do you have any tips for like, like, I don't know. Am I explaining that well? Like just cooking recipes you mean? Yeah. Like where do you find them or do you just create your own or (laughs) how does that work? You know, I think, I think God gives us, I don't think, I know that God gives each one of us individually, whatever your, your religious preferences are. I believe that we've all been given certain gifts and 
I think that he has gifted me with like, let's throw things to get like recipes, except when it comes to canning. That is not the case. But otherwise, recipes are a guideline. That's how I view them. Like a recipe is a guideline. And so let's try this and that and let's see if it works. And I, I've been very fortunate that most of the time they work really well. <laughs> so a lot of times, like I'll just kind of look at like a base, like cook time for something. If it's something I haven't really done before, kind of look at a base. And then I just kind of start throwing stuff together. The only down fall to that is if you don't document what you've thrown together and it turns out phenomenally, sometimes it's hard to replicate it. So especially now that I share so much in books and in, like you said, the the free online magazine that we've got and, and those different resources is I've learned that I really need to write things down when I'm doing it so that I could get it to turn out the same way the next time. That's so true. Cause like I've been trying to like recreate this hemp seed salad dressing oil, hemp seed oil salad dressing recipe. And every time I try to like write it and then follow my measurements, it never works. But when I just wing it, it comes out right every time. So that's a great tip. Uh, how about what's your favorite reading material or like book? Oh, magazine. Goodness, like I'm a, I'm a pretty voracious reader, so I don't know that I've like if I had to pick an all-time favorite, of course I'm just going to go with the Little House on the Prairie series because I feel like every time I reread through that series, now my daughter and I were reading through it like I've read I couldn't even tell you how many times from since childhood to adulthood I've read that series, but especially now that I'm a homesteader and looking at it more, I feel like I pull out something new or notice something new, especially like in Farmer Boy, for example, or, you know, when Ma and Pa are doing things. Whereas when I was younger, obviously I was focused more on like what Laura was doing or Mary or, you know, Amonzo. Um, but if, so if I had to pick like one, it would probably be that series. But I read like, I read like all all the time and I listen to audiobooks and I listen to podcasts. So I don't know that I have really like one favorite, but I would say like my my fallback on like I think is so good would probably be that one. But I'm like bouncing all the time. Um, I do really like as far as magazines go, I do like the new Pioneer magazine and also Mother Earth News, which I'm sure most people are super familiar with. But I feel like they've got good, good, solid um you know, good solid stuff that's always right up my alley as a gardener and a homesteader. I find they have great resources when I'm surfing on the internet. I like to look at Mother Earth News. And then what do you think about um, the new Magnolia Journal? Like, do you know Joanna Gaines's Magnolia Journal? I've been <laughs> I, loving that. Yeah. You know, and it's funny is um, I actually enjoy watching their show. I don't watch a ton of TV, um, but I have enjoyed watching their show in the past. And I did get one edition of her magazine um, a few issues back because I think it's quarterly. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, and I, I love that she's bringing to like the mainstream, like some more simple type, farmish type ways of living um, and incorporating that. I feel like that's a really great thing. And I think you do a lot of that, like bringing it to the mainstream. Because my mom's always like, she's always like, nobody wants to know about canning. Nobody's canning anymore. And I'm like, she thinks like my husband and I are like the only people who can. <laughs> really, I mean, it's my husband who does it all. But because um, like I get like squeamish, like when he's like canning salmon or doing anything in the pressure cooker, I just get nervous. Like that's just, 
uh, I don't know why. It's like he's doing a science experiment or something. But anyway, all right. So here's my final question. Because I know like you, you are super busy and we've gone over an hour. I'm like looking at the clock. I'm like, you got to move on. So, <laughs> but because my final question is kind of a doozy. So okay. Melissa, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about? A project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, uh, nationally, or on a global scale? That's a great question. And, you know, really, I would say what, what it boils down to for me is I really feel like we would see the biggest change in our world is if every single family and or every household, let me put it that way, is if every single household grew at least one item of their own food and then they they cooked with that because I feel like if everybody could see, even in an apartment, you can grow your own basil on a windowsill in water. You don't even need to have dirt. I have a blog post on that, which is I didn't even mean that to be like a plug. But because I oftentimes that, you know, like people are like, well, you know, not everybody could do that because you live in the city or you live in an urban environment or everything. And you can grow for goodness sakes, you can grow sprouts in a mason jar in three days. But I feel like if every single family and every single household grew at least one thing that they would notice the flavor difference. And then if you're growing something, you're going to use it and cook from scratch with it, or you're going to add it to a dish and you're going to notice the flavor change. Like, oh my goodness, like this tastes better. And especially when you get kids involved, when my kids grow a vegetable, if it's something we've purchased in the store before and they're kind of like, I don't like that. I don't want to try that, which as they get older, I hear more of. <laughs> um, but if they grow it and have a hand in harvesting it, then they are more willing to eat it. It's like this phenomenal, but I talk to many, many parents with kids that start gardening and they they say the same thing because homegrown actually tastes better and it does have more nutritional value um, when it's homegrown than you can get even from a local farmer's market. So I feel like if every household did that, that it would grow and evolve and you would get them growing more, which means less things having to be shipped and less things, you know, just traveling all over and that we would have more people cooking from scratch. So then their health would be improved and not only their health, but their family dynamics, because when you're making meals together, then, you know, you're eating together. Usually if you have takeout, you might just eat it on the fly. But if it's a home cooked meal, usually you at least sit down and eat that together. It just is a different dynamic for the family for the whole evening. Um, and therefore you're going to change your health. Your kids are going to see you cooking, you're setting a precedence, and then you have the opportunity to teach them so that we don't have these generations like we do right now that just, they don't know how to do it. It's not that they necessarily choose not to, they actually don't know that you can make homemade condensed soup very quickly with five ingredients or less that are real food in less than four minutes, you don't have to buy that GMO laden junk in the store from a tin can. So sorry, I got really passionate there for a moment, but I really do feel that, that that's the starting point. If we could just get every household to grow one thing, I think that would be the seed that would ripple out and cause a, a whole, a change for the, the entire next generation and, and the whole planet. Well, I, my listeners, my mom's always like, don't say I love that so much, but I do love that. And like, I can't wait to go read the blog post about growing the basil plant in water because I always like to have a basil plant on my windowsill. And like when I started my podcast, that was about all I could keep alive. 
Um, and that, and that's so true. So Melissa, tell listeners, where do they find your podcast and your website and order your book and just all these great things to get the bonuses and listeners? Well, go ahead. You tell them that part. Okay. Well, com is where you'll find everything. You'll find the Pioneering Today podcast, which of course is available on, on, you know, iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all the places that you would listen to a podcast. And I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I love podcasts. They're my favorite medium for learning and being entertained and just all the things. Um, but my website, com, you'll find the blog there where I've got a ton of different tutorials and recipes and resources to help you grow, preserve, and cook your own food. Um, and then you'll see the books there as well. And it's the familygardenplan.com. And you'll see all of the info on pre-ordering it and also how to, to claim and get instant access to that entire bonus package. And Jackie, thank you so much for having me on. I, this was so much fun. And I just love to see that there's so many people who are interested in growing their own food. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. And so listeners, you know, what I'm going to say is that when you go to pre-order Melissa's book, you also want to go to her website and maybe get one of the other books, or you can probably do it if you order it on Amazon, like right there. So you can get a book delivered right away. Cause she also has a book called the modern guide to made from scratch living handmade. And then the other book is oh, where to go. Sorry. Um, and make sure that you leave her a five star review because we know even, or on the podcast, because we know, you know, that I'm always saying that I hate when I find a new podcast and their listeners have not left them reviews. So then it doesn't show up in my feed when I search that topic. And so, um, make sure that you, and I know you're going to become a listener to this podcast because it's just full of great, valuable, um, tips and uh, great guests and just Melissa, like I said, she comes up with all these awesome, just like simple systems to make you more productive. Okay. So the other book's called the made from scratch life, simple ways to create a natural home. So, um, there's those two books that you can get right now and the new book. And, uh, well, thank you so much, Melissa, for sharing with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Hey everyone, have I told you about the Forager Project? They're a 100% organic plant-based food company based in California, dedicated to making a world a better place than they found it. Don't you love that? They make yogurts, kefirs, all these cool things out of organic cashews. Do you know that cashews are actually a seed on an apple? Yeah, I found the coolest um, video on cashews. Anyway, so they turn these cashews into sour cream, cottage cheese, milk, yogurts. Um, they're really delicious. They sent me samples actually in a FedEx box with ice. It was so cool. Um, they're absolutely delicious. Forager Project is passionate about creating healthy, organic, plant-based food and equally passionate about nurturing a healthy democracy. They believe that voting is the most essential ingredient needed to do this. Forager wants to inspire everyone to get out and vote. And that means you participate in our democracy. They provide voting resources and information for you at foragerproject.com forward slash vote. Or on the socials like Instagram, Twitter, etc. at Forager Project. Cultivate democracy. Vote. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? 
If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.